Welcome inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here once again, and we have on a reoccurring guest. That's right, a recurring guest, Mel Aiton. We'll get to that in a second. But first, no sponsor this time. Just share the podcast. Just share it. And if you're sharing it, drop us a five stars. Share. I don't know. Sharing is caring, something like that. Figure it out. Okay. Today's guest is Mel Aiton. His book, new book, is Protecting the Presidential Candidates from JFK to Biden. If you remember, we had him on before talking about Sirhan Sirhan. He is a historian who covers these interesting topics. I'm a little bit jealous of him. And without further ado, here is Mel Aiton. Well, Mel, um, it's good to get you back on the program, especially you were just on here, I think, a few months ago talking about Sirhan Sirhan. So it's good to get you back on so quickly. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Ryan. Um, yes, the Sirhan story is continuing at the moment because of uh, Robert Kennedy's son, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who has now come out uh, in favor of a conspiracy writer's book um, and is in the news again with it. Um, th- this absolutely incredible decision he made to support this conspiracy conspiracy writer whose work has been debunked time after time by myself and Dan Muldeer. Uh, I have an article in the Washington Decoded, that's Max Holland's uh, webzine, and uh, your listeners can access that and find out exactly why uh, this woman who uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. supports, her, her work is is, is just pure fantasy. Okay, and you were on episode 52 of Inside the War Room, so we'll link to that in the show notes, talking about Sirhan, Sirhan as well, so people can check that out. You mentioned either on the show or off the show, right after we got off, that you had, had a new book coming on, but I don't remember, but we talked about getting you on when it when it arrived, and here it is, uh, protecting the presidential candidates from JFK to Biden. Um, let me just start here by saying... I thought it was an interesting choice, a shrewd choice, if you will, to pick the candidates because there's a lot to explore there that maybe the average um, political person in the U.S. might not be aware of. What what tipped you off to exploring not just the winners or the presidents themselves, but the actual candidates? Well, as you know, Ryan, I, I covered the um, uh, 19th and early 20th century presidents in my book, plotting to kill the president, uh, from uh, Franklin Roosevelt to Barack Obama, I looked at uh, the Secret Service's work in protecting uh, those presidents. So I was virtually up to date apart from Donald Trump. And uh, so I I thought because there was so many uh, assassination plots and threats against those presidents, that I thought, well, what about the presidential candidates? Uh, did they experience the same level of threats as, as the presidents? And lo and behold, uh, uh, my research took me to looking at presidential candidates from uh, JFK to the present day. And uh, there was just a gold mine of information, court records, government departments, government bureaucracies, Congress, Library of Congress, and so on, um, of stories uh, of attempted assassinations, of assassination plots against candidates themselves. Usually, of course, these candidates were the front runners. 
Yeah. So I remember, I think we talked about this offline. Um, the book Zero Fail came out this summertime and we we're both commenting that we read it. Um, I think you use that for um, uh, some of the stuff you're looking at for this book. But one of the things about that book and in your book that, that kind of really has caught me off guard here is, as you just alluded to, there's so much records about this, but it doesn't get covered a lot. Why is it? So are these records hard to uncover or is it just they're there and no one wants to go look into it? Because when I've read these stories, it's like, wow, okay, I don't really hear a lot of people talking about this. There's not shows or, you know, Netflix that have series dedicated to this, but obviously you're able to uncover the information. What's the disconnect there between what you're trying to cover and uh, mainstream culture? First of all, you have the Secret Service, which isn't forthcoming in, in, in wanting to reveal these stories. Uh, clearly, America is an open society, an open democracy. And let's say you have uh, an attack uh, at, at the White House. When you have the press there, they, they can't exactly cover that up. When you have uh, a campaign rally, and there's an ob, you know, seen by thousands of people, uh, a potential attacker, then they can't cover that up either. But there are some instances where they've actually haven't released any information. Um, and the, of course, the, the case comes to trial. And if you search the, uh, the court records, then these things, you know, alight. So, yeah, I'm guessing now these stories are probably getting more attention because in the age of the internet, it's easier to kind of put together what you said, whereas, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it would have been a lot harder to kind of figure out what, what actually happened, and then you had to remember it, and you couldn't search it very easily. Is that helping kind of this resurgence of these, of these stories coming to light again? I think perhaps it is. Uh, for example, there, there are two areas of concern with the Secret Service. One is social media, that the number of threats going on is just, it's really, you know, difficult to track down because there are so many of them and it's so easy on social media. The other uh, concern of the Secret Service is the, uh, uh, connected with the internet, of course, is uh, heightened technology. I mean, you've even had threats uh, of people using the dark debt and uh, that's caused an awful lot of concern. Uh, combine that with uh, technology. You know, you have um, autonomous weapons, for example. Um, you know, there's, there's a present study going on at the moment about uh, how you would protect a candidate or president with autonomous weapons. You can actually release a thousand uh, you know, sort of small, small machines these days uh, to to target anything and anyone. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that I found interesting, the, the more I've kind of looked into the Secret Service is it seems that on one level, they have this veil of secrecy, as you alluded to, but that also, it, it might help them in some instances, but it also seems to hurt them because they're not necessarily forthcoming. They, they, they lie to Congress, they try to cover up, which means they, they compound their errors as well. Um, and so it's kind of hard to read, get a read of when they're actually, you know, being as efficient as Americans might think they are, or it's just they got lucky. What's your read on that? Like how often is it that, that they're really 
um, they're really that efficient or a lot of times they're just getting lucky? Well, I, I think they have to be efficient. Uh, they've certainly been in, uh, you know, efficient in uh, the last 50 years. Uh, how, how do I know that? Because a lot of plots are being foiled. Um, sometimes it has been luck. For example, you've had a tip-off, you've had an informant. Uh, just the way the FBI works, you know, they, they have to rely on the public a lot. So you cover, you know, a wide range of candidates in here. Um, what was your favorite candidate to write about? Well, it was fascinating to, to research Ted Kennedy because Remember, you had uh, uh, there's such a thing as, as, as a copycat, copycat uh, act. And, uh, you know, after the JFK assassination, you know, that opened Pandora's box to an awful lot of unstable people who wanted to, well, gate crash into infamy um, by targeting either a candidate or, or, or a president. And then you had, of course, the Robert Kennedy assassination, Sirhan wanted to be the Kennedy's uh, uh, second Kennedy uh, assassin. Um, you had an awful lot of nobodies who wanted to become somebodies. Uh, and therefore, if you have these unstable individuals, you know, uh, excited about these, uh, about the election, because remember, you know, the election cycle, uh, it's always a, an exciting time. And uh, it, it's a way like Hinckley, uh, to enter the history books by uh, taking aim at a candidate or uh, president. Yeah, and that's one of the things you've studied these guys so much. And that's one of the things that obviously I was born in 85. So a lot, all, all these stories or most of these stories happened before um, I was born or, or around or of age at least. And so it, it's kind of hard to imagine what the world was like. I've, you know, I watch documentaries, read books, but um, were they treated as you talk about being, they won't kind of fame. Were they treated with kind of that, um, you know, the fame, like you might see it you know, like in a, the Joker movie or whatever, where the villain is truly the, uh, is kind of revered as a good guy. Was there a lot of American culture that would see them that way? Or was it just the fact that they were on TV and that was good enough for them? What, what, what it's kind of hard to envision a world where, um, that's what people want, but yet I, I agree that that's what it is. So what, what was the kind of coverage they were getting and why did that spur them on? Well, you, you know, there, there were two, two types of uh, uh, motives uh, for these uh, people. Uh, and I'm talking in a generic sense here, you know, of all the candidates. Uh, one was the desire for fame. Uh, and, and sometimes, just like Sirhan, there was a desire to act out or, or act upon their uh, political anger. Uh, an example I can give you is Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson uh, had an awful lot of threats. Basically, uh, his threats were based on the fact that he was an African-American. Uh, and of course, you had some people who plotted to kill him. There was one couple in Missouri, for example, who did exactly that uh, because they didn't want to see him become president. So there's the personal and there's the political. Uh, sometimes it's just the personal, per, uh, the personal side uh, that acts out. Uh, that is that uh, they, they, they simply 
are unstable individuals who want to uh, do something because they are unnoticed, they are ignored, uh, they feel like failures in life, uh, and, and, and they just act out in that way. Others, however, also have another agenda, and, uh, and that's political. Um, when you get the internet, that's you know, a strange area, because on the internet, it's like road rage, isn't it? Uh, they hate a candidate, so they go on the internet, they go on the social media, and they started to vent. Uh, so that sometimes can be political, it sometimes can be the fact that they simply don't like that person. Um, you know, that's a big problem that you have there. And since you've covered so many of these assassins and would-be assassins, you talked about their motivation. Um, are they generally forthright? So in other words, um, do sometimes they say their motivation is X, but really it's Y, or is it pretty much no? If they're if they're, if they're writing letters saying I'm going to kill you, like what they're saying is what they're after. Well, you know, they're all sorts. You have the letters where they're acting out of uh, the fact that they that they are on the right or the left. Uh, they hate the candidate or they hate the president because of his politics, um, and you have others who. Uh, simply don't realize what they're doing. I mean, there's so many people who don't understand the laws when it comes to threatening a president uh, that he can go to jail, can do jail time for it. Uh, there are so many people who've turned up in bars, for example, have seen the president or candidate on TV and have uh, uh, verbalized their hatred. Uh, it's been reported to, to the police or the authorities and then they've ended up in court, and many of them have done jail time. So let's go back to um, Jesse Jackson for a second. So he is obviously, um, at least in modern-day culture, a polarizing candidate. Was he polarizing back then when he was, when he was running as he is today? Uh, sorry, Ryan, which candidate? Uh, Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson. Um well, Jesse Jackson was a polarizing candidate uh, uh, for many who uh, were not racist, simply because he allied himself with Louis Farrakhan. And Louis Farrakhan was, uh, still is, a figure of uh, himself, uh, racial, is involved in racial hatred. Uh, he's very anti-Semitic, uh, always has been. And so, you know, it angered an awful lot of people who weren't racist when Jesse Jackson accepted his support. And so from the, uh, the uh, I guess, the would-be assassin standpoint, they're sitting there looking at all of this. And I guess that's, that's what's so weird to me is because when I look at what Jackson does or Obama or Trump or, or Biden, part of what I'm, what at least I view it as is they're just posturing. I mean, some of it's real, some of it's not, but, I never really know what these what these guys are really thinking, you know, versus what they're trying to do, score political points. But it seems in the world, in the mind of the assassin, they are very much, I don't know, literalist, either literalist, literalist in the fact that, you know, if you take the endorsement, then you must believe everything Farrakhan says. Or on the flip side, they must be conspiracy, uh, conspiracy, conspiracy thinking because they're, they're kind of thinking, oh, my gosh, well, it's far worse than what I'm thinking. Is that kind of how these assassins think? Because... Um, I'm not trying to weigh in on Farrakhan's morality, but 
I wouldn't necessarily think because a candidate took someone's endorsement, they would necessarily agree with everything that person supported. Well, you know, if we talk about would-be assassins, right, we're talking about uh, people who are extremists, and all extremists uh, uh, tend to be seen as uh, people who have really have lost the plot. Um, you have to be if, if you take extreme positions. Um, when it comes to the candidates, uh, those it, it, I, I found that the candidates who are uh, loved and hated in equal measure tend to attract the most uh, vitriol, uh, the most threats. Uh, you'll, you've, you'll see that in um, JFK, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Reagan. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the thinking um, that the assassin, uh, the would-be assassin has uh, towards a candidate. Uh, also, they're in the public uh, mind a lot, uh, you know, the, the front runners, they're on TV, uh, and so they generate more excitement, more electricity. Yeah. So what has been the best change the Secret Service has made um, over the last you know, 50 years or so to protect the candidates? Well, the best change is, has to be technology, um, that you have magnetometers you never had those in the the early 60s well the 60s i think they came about in the 70s uh you have better um well the budget is much much higher and you have more agents of course uh but you also have um better oversight uh, you have the bureaucracy within the secret service and the bureaucracy uh tend to um, look towards psychiatrists, psychologists uh, for help. There have been many uh, investigations began of, you know, the reasons and the motive. Uh, and, and so this has helped agents in the field to determine whether uh, a would-be assassin is serious in his threats or her threats. And so what's the opposite side of that would be is what's the one thing that they need to do, in your opinion, that they haven't done or they've failed to do? Well, to make sure, we saw this in the 2020 election. Um, Joe Biden, remember, he, he, he lost his uh, vice presidential secret service protection in 2017. Um, what people do that, you know, candidates can get their own security. They can hire their own bodyguards. But... Um, Remember, Joe Biden was on stage and someone jumped on stage. And of course, he didn't have Secret Service protection. Um, candidates can't just rely on private security because they don't have the type of training that the Secret Service agents have. You have to have professional bodyguards. And the, the real professional bodyguards are the Secret Service agents. Uh, not all candidates receive them immediately. Some do, some receive Secret Service protection like uh, Obama, that was a year before the election uh, because of certain threats. Uh, Ted Kennedy, another example, received uh, protection. So some candidates do, not all did receive. And also candidates have the choice of whether to accept Secret Service protection or not. Um, so I think uh, really 
candidates that you have to sort out long before the primaries begin, really, with the uh, with polls, uh, which which they can't uh, support them all. For right. example, you know, you start with twenty or thirty sometimes, uh, either either you know the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. Uh, so you know, budget wise, that would seem like it was impossible, but. Getting Secret Service protection earlier for a lot more candidates would seem to be a wise decision. And you mentioned, um, you know, budget-wise, and there's also just the, you know, the availability of candidate uh, of of, um, of uh, officers or, or agents rather that that can cover that many candidates because twenty candidates, as you mentioned. Yeah, I, I think twenty candidates. I think that that was the Republicans in 2016. Yeah. Right. So let's go to the past two presidential elections, which have gotten obviously a lot of coverage for a lot of different reasons. So you have the Trump versus uh, Clinton in 2016, and you have uh, you know Biden and um, uh, Trump in, in you know, 2020. Two two drastically different um, campaigns, uh, obviously because we have the, the COVID. But from the Secret Service standpoint, um, and, and from you know, the, the, uh, the would-be assassin's standpoint and the, the kind of following that narrative, what were some things that stood out to you as you researched those, those campaigns? Well, the 2016 campaign was, uh, to a lot of people, much like the 1968 campaign. In 68, you had the Vietnam War demonstrators, you had the, uh, the riots in cities across America after the assassination of Martin Luther King, for example. Um, so, you know, it, it was a period of intense, uh, intense problems for the Secret Service uh, because of everything that was going on. Violence was endemic. That seemed to be uh, as it was in 2016. And of course, the, there were fears amongst many agents uh, that the, well, the hatred directed uh, certainly on social media towards either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump uh, seemed to exacerbate, incite an awful lot more threats. Um, so that stands out, the 2016. 2020, um, well, you know, we all saw what happened in the 2020 election. Um, candidates didn't appear as much as 2016 because of the, you know, because of COVID. But um, you still had the, the same level of threats going on. And, you know, um, it's the Secret Service have a, a really tough job. So you mentioned um, uh, in the book about the 2016, that the Secret Service was kind of caught off guard by the size of Trump's rallies, and then not only the size of his rallies, um, also the opposite reaction, the, kind of the, the vitriol, the hate that came from him. Uh, and that, this has kind of been a point, this is far as you know, during the election of 2016, um, that wasn't probably getting a lot of media coverage, you know, how, how large his rallies were versus Clinton's. Obviously, with retrospect, that played a bigger role in the election than most thought. But hearing this, kind of reading your, your, your you talking about the Secret Service, it's surprising that they were taken aback because you figured they would kind of have this inside track on exactly how many tickets are being sold, what the expectation is, what the forecast is. Um, and then they would probably have a better sense of maybe how Trump is being 
you know, coming coming across the general American public. Um, why were they so surprised by that? Was it just simply that they're kind of honed in on, you know, more just the the daily function of protection, or was it Trump kind of took things by storm and just kind of caught them off guard? What what happened there? Well, I think you're right there. To, to probably caught off guard. Uh, no one foresaw uh, the incredible uh, speed of the rise of Trump. Um, the uh, you know, the, the rallies he had. And uh, the, so you would have instances, for example, where they couldn't get the crowd through the magnetometers. I mean, that's vital in campaign rallies, having mag- magnet- magnetometers to check all of the audience. And in some cases, they had to abandon uh, uh, checking visitors. Uh, 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 and, you know, that's a real risky thing to, to have happen. Yeah, and you kind of kind of contrast that with the 2020, which is interesting because in 2020, as you mentioned, um, the candidates weren't able to go out as much. Um, obviously, Biden didn't do a whole lot of campaigning at all, especially well once campaign once COVID kind of came in. Um, and I guess that was from the Secret Service's standpoint, probably the the best campaign election season they've had in a long time. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Absolutely, because uh, you know the candidates weren't out there as much. And if they aren't out there as much, the Secret Service don't have to worry about, you know, uh, the threats and a would-be assassin carrying out the threat. Okay. So let's talk about the, the Secret Service um, just functionally for a second here. How has the, the size and the scope of the number of agents changed over the years? Um, and, you know, is, is it has um, it gone up a little bit, a lot, obviously, you would, you would expect a pretty substantial jump since Kennedy, but what's that look like practically? Well, you know, there are two instances where uh, the Secret Service, uh, for want of a better phrase, learned, learned their lesson. Um, the lesson learned with the JFK assassination was uh, traveling uh, through, through cities in an open-top limousine. Uh, and, of course, that... This was supposed to change, but that didn't stop Lyndon Johnson in the 64 election from campaigning, standing up in an open top limousine. You know, it was supposed to be, the bubble top was supposed to be on. You're supposed to have the covered limousine. And that didn't stop Nixon either. Uh, Nixon was seen frequently standing uh, standing up in the limousine with his head popped out the, <laughs> popping out the roof. Uh, in in crowds, in, in enormous crowds. And of course, that worried the Secret Service uh, a lot. Uh, these days, uh, compared to these days, you, you'll, you'll never see um, a candidate or a president. Um, well, let's say you'll ever see a president rather than a candidate uh, doing that. I mean, you won't be allowed to do that at all. Uh, and the other one was um, the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. Uh, when John Hinckley was allowed to get so near, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the roped off area, it was too close to the president's route from the hotel, the Hilton Hotel, to his limousine. Uh, so those procedures have changed. The Secret Service over the years have always learned by their mistakes. Um, and that's an example of, of two of them. Thankfully, uh, this idea about standing up in a limousine uh, gradually 
presidents learned not to do that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I remember when Trump was elected, he walked down the streets in, in D.C. And I remember going, huh, this seems like a bad idea. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Well, as I say, you know, I mean, uh, it's more presidents than candidates. So you'll still have candidates because um, uh, candidates uh, seem to think that, uh, you know, it's presidents who, who, who are the target. Followers of, of would-be assassins, and of course that, that that's not true, as I demonstrate in the book. Mm. Every election since uh, uh, JFK, there have been um, candidates who received threats, and many of them serious. If we go all the way back to the '64 election, uh, Lyndon Johnson was not only a candidate in the '64 election, but he was actually president, uh, succeeding uh, J- John Kennedy. Um, and Lyndon Johnson, uh, there was a, uh, here we get back to the copycat effect and that, uh, you know, you have unstable people, people wanting to uh, copy uh, assassins of the past uh, and, and many times receive uh, inspiration from assassins of the past. And there was one instant uh, in the 64 campaign where there's a guy with a rifle in a, a tall building and uh, the Secret Service were tipped off, and that guy was caught uh, before he had a chance to uh, copy Oswald. Um, at the same campaign, uh, no one knew about this because it wasn't publicized. It didn't come out until, uh, well, I discovered a government report which, which um, uh, mentioned it. And that was Barry Coldwater, uh, Johnson's uh, opponent, Republican opponent, and there was an assassin ready with a rifle to uh, to shoot, according to the Secret Service, ready to shoot uh, Goldwater, but uh, that was foiled uh, at the last second when Goldwater was at the uh, an airport. So you, you travel on and you go through the '68 election. Of course, the uh, you know the assassination of Robert Kennedy. He'd had many threats before then. Um, you had the assassination of Martin Luther King, who wasn't a presidential candidate, but, you know, he, he was a famous figure, which inspired, uh, you know, other uh, would-be would assassins. Um, you had other candidates uh, who also received many threats. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller was a candidate in the 68 election after George Romney, um, the guy he was supporting, dropped out. Um, so. You go on through all of the election cycles every four years to 72. George McGovern, Nixon's opponent in the 72 election, uh, the Secret Service had to deal with plots to kill George McGovern. And it's on and on like that. And uh, the more these things are publicized, I, I guess the mortal, uh, the, the mortal ram home uh, to future candidates that, uh, you know, you, you can't dice with death uh, by wanting to meet and greet, meet the people, wanting to gain popularity. Uh, you know, it's still there. You know, the risk is still there. How many Secret Service agents have died protecting presidents or presidential candidates? Well, I, I do mention the book, uh, Ryan, but um, I, it, something along the, the lines of about 40, something like that. Approximately 40. Yeah, I know. That, that, well, that's, that number 
So, so the that just I, mean to like, say that, I never realized yeah. that. It just mean to say that they they jump you in front of a, a candidate to rescue him from um, a bullet. Uh, it, it means things like uh, you know you have motorcycle policemen, True. you have car crashes, uh, you have you know incidents of that nature. It's not just Secret Service agents, by the way. It's uh, lo- local police officers have have been killed in motorcades, for example car crashes. Uh, Ford was involved in a couple of car crashes, I remember. Um, No one was killed, thankfully, uh, in that case. So, you know, yes, it's, you know, they have had it. I'm not saying that their risk is more than the average police officer. I'm just saying that, you know, there is a risk in protecting a president. Well, what about the Reagan uh, assassination attempt? You know, a Secret Service agent was shot. Uh, police officer was shot. Uh, uh, thankfully, uh, they didn't die, but uh, these the risk. Another one was George Wallace. When George Wallace was campaigning in the 72 election, mm-hmm. uh, he received Secret Service protection and uh, uh, an agent was shot uh, uh, at the time that Wallace was shot. Yeah, the, the George Wallace story, I think, is this is interesting for a lot of reasons, but maybe unpack that a little bit more about George Wallace, who he was, and what would happen there. I can tell you a story about how the George Wallace assassination attempt uh, could never have come about if he'd followed uh, procedures when he was the same procedures when he was running in the 1968 election. Uh, Wallace in 72 was running in the prime, the Democrat primaries as a Democratic candidate. In 1968, as an independent party, American independent party candidate, uh, he, he followed these protocols for his, um, what he didn't have secret service protection, but he had um, state police officers um, who guarded him. And they had what they themselves called the Maginot Light. And it was Wallace with two, you know, two agents on either side of him. Uh, about a couple of feet away, you had another line of state police officers, uh, which formed a kind of a tunnel. And people who wanted to meet uh, Wallace would, would walk through this, this avenue of agents and the candidate. Uh, it would have been impossible for uh, Arthur Bremer you know, to, 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 to shoot Wallace under those circumstances. Fast forward four years and you've got um, Wallace uh, campaigning in Maryland and he just went, he gave a speech, he walked off the podium to greet, meet and greet, the shaking hands. And of course he he was shocked. If he carried out the protocols of 1968, that that wouldn't have happened. But there have been so many instances. Ronald Reagan, for example, he first ran uh, for president, uh, I think a lot of people don't know this, but he, he first ran as a candidate in 1968. Of course, you know, he didn't have a chance against Nixon, really. Uh, the next time he ran was 1976 uh, in the Republican primaries against uh, President Ford. Uh, exactly the same type of thing happened, except it was a starting pistol. And it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, a real gun like uh, Arthur Bremer used. So 
what so instances of uh, threats like that have, have you know have, have happened with the meet and greet uh john lindsay another one he was uh on the steps of city hall in new york he, he was a front runner he was a few he was named by the media as a future president and there was a guy with a a, a large knife uh and uh to cut a long story short, you know, it turned out he 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 did want to use it on on Lindsay, but he was spotted by a police officer and he was disarmed. So, you know, it's that type of thing. It's it's protocols when campaigning are so very important. Uh, the days I think of uh, going into unruly crowds. Uh, well, the Secret Service certainly do not want candidates to do that. And I think perhaps the general public would be in agreement that uh, it's a bit foolhardy to do that. Okay, um, last question, or actually two questions for us. What is the one story that maybe you dug into that's partially in the book or that you had to omit from the book that you wish you could find out more about, um, but there's not records, the records are sealed or it wasn't covered well enough? Um, so is there a story like that that you said, okay, maybe I touched on the book or I had to omit it because I couldn't get enough information on that you would love to hear the full story on? I know that there aren't any. I, I think, you know, the, the ones that I've found, I'm not saying I found every, every. The Secret Service files are closed. Uh, the, there's no way you can, you, you can leave them. The last Secret Service uh, uh, files released on um uh, presidents, uh, assassination attempts against presidents, uh, was the 1920s. So, you know, before the 1920s, we know now, we know everything. Um, certainly the, uh, the information I provide about the 19th century presidents, uh, were a lot were buried in uh, uh, old newspaper archives uh, and haven't seen the light of day in any history or biography of presidents. Um, but now I think that's that's finally been settled. If you're talking about the the last sixty years, uh, uh, I, the ones that I did find out, I I I, I think I've given you know good information, uh, valid information about. Um, so there really isn't any I, I can say I'd, I'd like to find out more. Okay, well, with that being said. Um... What do you, I know you just released this book, but authors are always getting ready for the next book, it seems like. So do you have another book in the works or uh, thoughts of a book? And can you let us know what that might be? Yes, the next book, uh, actually, I signed a three book contract. Um, the next book will be, um, it'll be a collection of my essays on debunking the uh, Kennedy brothers uh, assassination theories. Oh, uh, interesting. Uh, which is, I mean, I've already written about the Robert Kennedy's uh, assassination. The, the book's called The Forgotten Terrorist. Um, but uh, this is a collection of essays and commentary about, you know, whether basically uh, what I wrote at the time has uh, panned out uh, or there's more information um, about the areas that I, I looked at. Um, so that, that will be the next book. And the book after that uh, will be looking again. I've already looked into the Martin Luther King assassination, but there's been so much coming out. Uh, there's been so many records released uh, since then that uh, I'm going back to take 
a look at it. And so, I mean, I've done a little research. You know, I leapfrog. You have to leapfrog with articles and books. You've got to put one away and take up another again. And so I think uh, with the, the research I've done so far, that uh, I, I think I can make a good case that uh, there was a conspiracy in the Martin Luther King assassination, but it wasn't a conspiracy made by, uh, by the likes of uh, uh, James L. Ray's lawyer, William Pepper, which is full of just uh, terrible speculation, uh, naming, and he named uh, individuals, uh, he named a soldier, uh, but he named him because he thought he was dead. And he, you know, he wasn't afraid of libel because he thought he was dead. CBS produced him on a TV program and he was so embarrassed about that. Mm -hmm. Well, he did it again. He named a police, a Memphis police officer. And then he named another Memphis police officer. And I mean, it, totally irresponsible. But I think I can... Um, I th I'm moving in towards uh, assembling evidence proving that the conspiracy involved James L. Ray and his two brothers, John and Jerry. Okay, well, They should have been tried at the time. I think they should have been charged. I think they should have been um, on trial with James L. Ray. Uh, but what I'm researching now is the reasons why they weren't. Okay, well, when will those two roughly be out? Do you have a rough timetable yet? Uh, well, my publishers think uh, that the, the next book would be out probably um, towards the end of uh, 2022. And the uh, Martin Luther King book, well, it's going to take me, you know, probably the next year at least, or the next two years. And um, so we'll have to guess at that one. Okay, no, that's fine. Okay, well, Looking forward to reading both those, especially the MLK one, as it sounds fascinating uh, to kind of hear your conclusions on that, um, as you are about as well researched as anyone of this history of the U.S. and this particular topic. So excited for all that. Again, congratulations on the book, which is protecting, protecting the Presidential Candidates. We'll link to that in the show notes so the listeners can go pick up a copy. It's available in the U.S. in hardback and Kindle. Um, and so, yeah, go pick up a copy, folks, and enjoy it. Um, always enjoy speaking with you, Mail, and looking forward to your next book. Thank you, Ryan. It's been a pleasure.